We are reading Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. You're right about the candy. I do have it, but I'm going to challenge you kiddos with a word that you might not all know. And the word is sufficient. Can you say that? Sufficient. Sufficient. It's kind of a tricky word. So that's the word that I want you to pay attention for. And I'm going to let you know um, that you can count all different versions of this word. You can count it if I say insufficient or sufficient or any other kind of variation that you hear on that word, okay? So what's the word you're listening for? Sufficient. Sufficient. Do you know what that means? Does any kiddo know what that means? Yeah. Yeah? Did someone, did I hear yes? Maybe? Okay, wait, who said yes over there? Henry? No? Conley? Enough. Perfect. That's exactly right. It means enough. So that's what we're going to look for today, okay? So kiddos, that's what I want you to try and pay attention every time you hear that word. Okay, 
sufficient. Um, so everyone in here, do you guys ever go wish that you could just go back and reread like one of your favorite books, but for the first time, you know? Um, like sometimes I think about this when my kids were like reading Harry Potter for the first time. I was like, it's so magical to not know what's coming and get to read it and experience that joy and excitement for the first time, right? Um, or like your favorite TV show, like how great it would be to get to experience it again, but for the first time all over. Um, I remember in college, you know, Matt and I like clocked so many hours watching Friends. And I remember like one time there was an episode that he had never seen before. And he was like, I've never seen this before. And I just kept thinking like, gosh, you're so lucky uh, like to experience that, you know? Um, okay, that's how I feel about these stories in Mark that we just heard read to us. These are some of the most familiar stories in scripture, right? Like, um, even if you know just a little bit about the Bible, you've probably heard um, some variation of these stories. But these stories that we just had read to us, like, they're pretty insane, right? Like, they're, they're really wild. So take for a minute and imagine that, this is the, that you've heard these stories for the first time. Um, so with that in mind, I want to hear from a couple of you guys of what is something that just seems wild to you about these stories? What's something that just kind of catches your attention that you think, if you were to hear this story again for the first time, or if this really is your first time hearing this story, what is something that stands out to you that you just think, this is wild? Yeah. We, yeah, we can't. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's wild. What else? Walking on water. That's pretty wild. Can any of you guys walk on water? Have you ever seen anybody walk on water? No. That's pretty wild. Yeah. And he just happens to pass by him. Yeah. He, 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 it's like one that he's walking on water, but also that like he's just like casually strolling by, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Like they just saw this incredible miracle and they're still struggling to understand who he is. So I say this often, um, but I, it bears repeating. What I want us to do is I want us to do our best to approach this passage of Scripture with, a, with an open mind. Um, we want the uh, familiarity of these stories to be unfamiliar enough to us that we can still learn and understand and see God's love for us in these stories. Um, so I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable for a second with you guys and tell you a little bit give you a little bit of insight into my own brain and mind. Um, so I have a counselor that I see and I love, and I've seen her for several years. Very thankful for her. Um, but one of the reasons why I see her is because I personally struggle with a lot of regret, and I have a, this fear of wasting my time. I have this fear of not meeting my potential, um, of looking back and wishing 
that I had either parented better or loved Matt better um, or that I was a better friend or a better teacher, a better daughter. Um, And I do think that this can produce like a healthy dose of reflection is good for us. Um, It's good to help us grow, right? Uh, But for me, it can also put me in a really crippling state. It can keep me up at night. Um, It can prevent me from being present to the life that I'm currently living. I can put incredibly high expectations upon myself that really what that does is ends up leading to a lot of negative self-talk in me. Um, The other day, just to give you an example of this, the other day I was explaining a situation to my sister and she goes, well, you know, it could be worse. And I said, yeah, but it could be better. Um, And that's like that that's that's like that was a sincere reaction that I struggle to have um for myself um I can either get in bed and just fall right asleep or I can stay up an hour chasing this one thought if only if only I had been kinder to my kiddo this morning Um, If only I had sent that email that I had that good intention to send. If only I had brought that person coffee. Um, If only, if only, if only. And that can keep me up a lot at night. So it makes me wonder, when was the last time that you uttered those words? And maybe you think of them in bigger terms, right? Um, If only I had gone to this college instead. If only I had gotten that promotion. If only um, my chosen political leader had won. If only I had stood up for myself, or if only I had tried harder. We, all, um, we also use this term, if only, I think when we talk, uh, consider the hope that we have for our future. If only my kids had gotten into that certain school. If only I had gotten that promotion. If only my family member was healed or didn't struggle with this issue. If only I could just take a vacation. And what's happening when we're saying that, when I struggle with this, is if only that speaks to our desire to satisfy our deepest longings. And it also speaks to our desire for control. And what it does is it makes us confront the reality of what we do and what we don't control, have control over. If only that speaks to our hope that we have to be completely self-sufficient, to be completely satisfied. But the thing is, for every if only that I can say or look back on or think, it's bound to disappoint or let me down or be fleeting or not live up to my expectations. So what I love about this passage that we're in this week is what it reveals to us about Jesus, that he is the one who only truly satisfies. And that's a message that I needed to hear this week. Um, And honestly, it's a message that I need to be told daily. There are so many different ways to look at this passage and preach a message from this passage, but this is the message that I needed to hear from it this week. And sometimes I can remember that on my own, you know, Sometimes I need Matt or another friend to speak that truth over me. Sometimes I need a professional to remind me, um, to make it fundamentally clear that I am limited in my capacity. So these stories in Scripture, they minister to me, and I pray that they minister to you too, wherever you are. 
So last week in Mark, we saw that uh, we read about the beheading of John the Baptist, a dear friend and cousin of Jesus's. And so this week, what we see is we see Jesus experience a bit of whiplash as he goes from receiving this painful news of John's death to then responding to a large and hungry crowd and then also responding to weary and terrified disciples. Like, that's a long day, right? Um, And so what I want for us today is to draw out the character of God, the character of Jesus, and specifically look at the sufficiency of Jesus in contrast to our own insufficiency. And what does it mean to be with Jesus, to be a disciple of his? What can we learn about that from this text? So let's look at the first story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I want us to consider how he first responds to this crowd and then how he responds to his disciples. So what's happening here is um, something that Mark doesn't say, but Matthew does So this story that Jesus feeding the 5,000, this is one of those stories that appears in all four of the Gospels. And so there's a little bit of different uh, details that we get in each of them. And something that Matthew tells us that Mark doesn't is that it appears that the disciples went and told Jesus about John the Baptist's death, which is what led him to withdraw to that quiet place, to want to get away. And it's easy to understand why Jesus wanted to withdraw, right? To why he wanted to go and be in a private place. Remember his humanity. Surely he was exhausted from his work, needing a break, some time without crowds. And we can understand that, right? Surely he wanted to mourn and grieve the loss of his cousin. And I also imagine his heart is probably really heavy, um, over, you know, dealing with the behavior and the leadership of Herod. I mean, how many times have we just wanted to break away from the news cycle? So he tells his disciples to come away with him, to be with him, and to get some rest. Come, be with me, let's rest. And this is part of being a disciple of Jesus, to be with him, to find rest in him, to go to that quiet place. But what we see is there is an interruption with the crowd. And what happens next is how he responds. Scripture says that news of his whereabouts spread and the crowds follow. In verse 34, it says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus responds to this interruption with compassion. Jesus, in the midst of his grief and exhaustion, he still gave of himself. The compassion in Jesus, the compassion in Jesus' heart overruled the weariness in his bones. He is nothing like us. And this is why it matters that we study his word and that we know him. When Jesus looked at the people who disrupted his plan for some much-needed solitude, Their needs spoke louder than his own. Now, when I read this, I'm honestly really tempted to judge Jesus in this situation. Because I think, Jesus, why would you do that? Like, put up some boundaries. Take care of yourself. It's okay to say no. But praise God, he is nothing 
like us. Because if Jesus, as a person in this moment, bothered to minister to the crowd, even in his most exhausted state, how much more does he have time for you and for me in his current resurrected state today? He never gets tired. He is always available, always sufficient for all of our needs. He is always full of compassion for you and for me. Always. So as evening approaches, the disciples start to worry. There's this huge crowd. It's approaching dinner time. The crowd would need food. And so they asked Jesus to send the crowds away to buy themselves some food so that they could go take care of themselves. And what happens here is a challenge to his disciples. And notice how Jesus responds. He's such a good teacher. I love this. Verse 37 says, you give them something to eat. Okay, how frustrating that must have sounded to them, right? Okay, this isn't fair. What are we supposed to do? And also... They've been at this all day, too. I can imagine that they're hungry as well. Um, And do you know how much it would cost to feed all these people? They say it would take eight months of wages to feed this crowd. But what Jesus does is he takes the situation and he teaches his disciples. He invites them to participate in the work of the kingdom. And so it's working. As they spend time with Jesus, he's rubbing off on them. And I think that we have to give them credit for at least noticing this need, right? They bring it to his attention, which is a step towards compassion. Compassion is having an awareness of a need and the desire to meet that need. So them having this awareness, that's getting them somewhere. Like they're moving in the right direction. And we have to believe that's because they're spending time with Jesus and they're seeing his way, his way of living. So Jesus responds with, great, okay, do something about this. So after they express their own insufficiency to meet this need, and after they figure out that they've got five loaves and two fish, Jesus takes what they've got, and he miraculously feeds all the people. They all ate, and everyone is satisfied. Scripture says it's 5,000 men, so including the women and children, they think that it's up to 20,000 people that get fed that day. It's insane. That's a wild story. There were 12 baskets left over as a sort of souvenir for each disciple to carry and to remember. To be a disciple of Jesus, what we're all after is to know that you don't have it in yourself but you know where to get it, and you get it from Jesus himself. So when I reflect and spiral out with my own regrets or my thoughts of if I have only had done it this way or I should have done it that way, there's an air of self-sufficiency in me that loses sight of Jesus' complete sufficiency. Jesus is sufficient for the needs of his disciples. So when I believe that I am not enough and that I need to do more, or when we tell God that we don't have enough resources to serve him, what's happening is we're really thinking too highly of ourselves. 
we don't have enough, that is an overstatement. Because we will never have enough. I will never have enough. But that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He takes something small and insignificant. He gives thanks for it. And then he uses it to bless others. He takes my insufficiency and he takes your insufficiencies and he turns them into a gift. I can't hear that enough. When you're a, di when you're a disciple of Jesus, that's what we get to be a part of. How often in our lives do we focus on our five loaves and our two fish? And we look at our limited talents, our limited time, our insufficient knowledge, our limited capabilities, and we think there's no way we have anything to offer or that we have anything of value. Or when we see a need, once again, we focus on just our five loaves and our two fish, and we think it's impossible to make a difference, to contribute anything of significance. We think that the magnitude of the need is way beyond us. But it's not about us. It is about Jesus. What Jesus wants is for us to bring our limited resources to him with thanksgiving. And then he will do the rest. Jesus, the son of God, who is all sufficient is able to take whatever we bring to him and multiply it, completing and perfecting what we lack. It's Jesus's sufficiency alone that overcomes our insufficiency. It's not a matter of if only I had done this or if only I had done that. It's about Jesus alone. So we come to this next passage of Jesus walking on the water. Mark takes us from the feeding of the 5,000, and then he says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him. And again, what Mark doesn't say, but what we see in another gospel, in the gospel of John, is that in response to this miracle, in response to the feeding of the 5,000, the people decide that they have seen what they needed to see, Jesus has provided food, he has provided health care, he has provided authority, it is time to make him our king. And that is their intention at this point. They want to be freed from the oppressive rule of the Romans, they see their king, and they're ready to make him it. But that's not why Jesus comes, so he gets out of town, and he sends his disciples on a boat, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. Now, the temptation as believers is to think that as long as you obey... Things will go well for you. But the disciples are obeying. Jesus is the one who told them to get in that boat. They are obeying. And also, they are struggling. They're suffering, really. It was rough. The wind was against them. I love the NIV version. It says they're straining against the oars. They've been rowing for hours. It's in the middle of the night after a long day. They probably were asking, like all of us has asked, have asked at some point, all I did was obey, and now this? What did I do to deserve this? 
And did I hear wrong? Did Jesus really tell us to get in this boat? But Jesus does not promise the smooth and easy life if we just obey. That's a false gospel. What he has promised us, though, is that he will never leave us, that he sees us and that he knows our pain, and that he will be with us always. If life was always smooth sailing, do you think you would ever realize how insufficient your own human strength actually is? Oh, I hate that. But would we ever realize that if everything went our way? And if it was always smooth sailing, do you think you would ever learn to depend fully upon God rather than depend on your own strength and abilities? Jesus sees that they're struggling and he goes out to them. In the pitch dark, stormy night, Jesus knew exactly where they were. And verse 48 says that he was about to pass by them. I love that. It says he, uh, in the ESV, it says he meant to pass by them. And in the NIV, it says he was about to pass by them. And I think that's such an interesting thing to catch in Scripture. I don't want us to think about it like Jesus just passing them by and that he will come to them if only they call out like he's trying to play a trick on them. I don't think that's what's happening. Instead, I want to show you two examples from the Old Testament that use this same phrase from Exodus and then 1 Kings. And in both of these examples, what we see first is Exodus 33. This is to Moses. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So that's Jesus, uh, God talking to Moses. And then the next one's from 1 Kings. And this is God appearing before Elijah. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. So it's the same phrase that's used for Moses and then Elijah which is interesting because in a few chapters later, we're going to see Moses and Elijah appear again. Um, but what's interesting about this is that in both of these examples, God passes by so that Moses and Elijah may each see his glory. So what's happening here is actually a further unveiling of Jesus's deity. What God did for Moses and what God did for Elijah, Jesus is doing for his disciples He's revealing more than a miracle of walking on water. He's revealing himself as God. But they still don't get it. They believe he's a ghost. They still do not understand his identity at all. And what Jesus does is he immediately speaks and says, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Remember just a couple weeks ago, we read about another storm involving the disciples and Jesus. And there's a couple of differences between these two uh, scenarios. But the biggest one that stands out to me is that in Mark 4, when we read this story a few weeks ago, Jesus asks them, why are you afraid? And this time he tells them, don't be afraid. And Jesus is always working to grow and mature us as his disciples. And that's part of what it is to be with him. Growth is going to happen when we are with him. He doesn't leave us stuck, but he also doesn't coddle us either. But he does reveal himself to us. 
And this phrase that he uses, it is I, it's the same divine name that God said to Moses when he said, I am. He's not telling them, don't be afraid, I'm not a ghost. He's saying, don't be afraid, I'm God. Take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. Jesus came to them right where they were, to the very place of their struggle. And what does he do then? He gets in the boat. He doesn't give them a lecture. He doesn't rebuke them. He just gets in. We are often tempted to believe that God is tired of hearing us struggle. But that's not the heart of God. He's not exasperated by us. Just like with the disciples, he pursues us. He shows up and he offers himself. And when we are with him, we have the opportunity to grow in our understanding of who he is, of how he loves us. And then we get invited into his kingdom work. So I love these two stories because these stories, they highlight both the insufficiency of human effort and the all-sufficiency of Christ. What situation in your life is asking more of you than you have to give? Where are you coming up empty and weary and worn down Because you're rowing as hard as you can, and it's just too much. You're not making any headway. Or you need more to give, but all you've got is a couple of fish and some bread. What we have is never enough. If it were, we wouldn't need God. And that's a terrifying thought. So why do we try to be sufficient on our own? And why do we make ourselves spin out thinking how we could have done things better? How things would be easier if only this had happened or if only this thing happens. And then our minds just take off. Instead, what would it look like for us to sit before the Lord and recognize our own human limitations and also be okay about them? Because we serve and follow a God who comes to us, who comes to us and says, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. God did not call you to himself because you were impressive and strong. He called you to himself because he loves you. And with that in mind, we get to take communion together. Jesus' understanding and his compassion that comes from a place of experience. He has experienced pain. He has experienced temptation. He knows what it feels like to be limited. And as the son of God who paid the price for our sins and who restored our relationship to God, Jesus can bring healing, restoration, and hope wherever we find ourselves. So as we share our burdens, our feelings of weakness and insufficiency, Jesus brings wholeness. He is the one who saves us. And it's by participating in this sacred meal that we get to declare that. It is by his blood 
and his body, that we move beyond seeing him as just a God of miracles, but also as our God who saves, our Messiah God, who meets all of our needs, who satisfies completely, who rescues us from our own insufficiencies, who puts a stop to all of the if-only conversations that we have, who says, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. So with that in mind, take and eat and drink. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that it is you who is completely sufficient. That in all of our insufficiencies, it is you who is complete. Lord, I pray that we would know and believe and understand that you meet all of our needs, that you are everything that we need. And that it is not about what we do or what we don't, won't, don't do, but what you have already done. Lord, give us hearts to recognize and understand and believe that you are enough. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, I'm going to send you guys out the benediction. Um, may the risen Christ go with you above you to watch over you, and beneath you to lift you up, beside you to encourage you, and within you to give you peace. Go in peace and have a beautiful week. See you next week.